Morning, Grace. Thrilled to be with you uh, this morning. My name is Jeremiah Ebling, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff at Grace. And in our time together today, I would like to talk about a deficit in our view of God that almost all of us possess as believers. In our time today, I want us to, to consider a problem in our spiritual lives that most of us treat the same way this text dot crew treated this tree limb in the road. We just work around it. We ignore it. We act like it's not there or we just learn to live with it. And we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see what this deficit is in, in our faith, how our, our faith can, can go wrong in the passage that we're going to be studying together today and in the passage we're going to be looking at together. Uh, this passage is in the First Testament. It is 1 Kings chapter 20. If you want to turn on over there in your Bibles or on your Bible app, uh, I want us to see what the Lord would have us see today, what he would want us to know today in order to be able to diagnose what this issue in our faith, our, our view of God, our theology would be, and then what we could begin to do now to deal with it. That's where we're headed today. First Kings chapter 20. I'm going to uh, tell you a lot of this story, but you know, you feel free to follow along with me as we do that. Uh, this is a story in Israel's history that takes place in a very dark time. Uh, it is a period marked by evil kings who give birth to still more evil kings. And one of the worst the Darth Vader of Israel's royal line is King Ahab. And King Ahab at this time, he is sitting on the throne in, in the rogue northern kingdom in Samaria. And King Ahab, he has stopped worshiping Yahweh. He has stopped pursuing the Lord. And instead, he has turned to Baal. And he's led the nation uh, to do the same. And so the Lord sends his man Elijah to King Ahab. Elijah comes to Ahab and, and he says, look, the Lord, he's going to stop the rain. Okay, for the next few years, the Lord is going to send a drought your way because he is trying to get your attention and he's trying to get the people's attention. Promises this drought is coming. And, of course, anytime there's going to be a drought, what inevitably follows? A famine. The crops die. The food disappears. The people waste away. Well, while Israel is growing weaker and, and, and weaker from this famine, the Arameans decide to pounce. Hey, this is one of Israel's enemies from the north. And uh, the Arameans, they, they see this is their chance to annihilate a compromised Israel. And so uh, the king of the Arameans, his name is Ben-Hadad, he gathers 32 other kings. These are our little king friends of his, I guess. And they march their armies and their horses up the hill to Samaria. And they besiege it. Okay, they stop all the, or what? what was left of the food in the water, at least, that was coming into Samaria. They put a stop to it. And then Ben-Hadad sends King Ahab, king of Israel, a message. And he says this. He says, all right, listen here, Ahab. This is how this is going to work. He says, I'm going to send my guys into your palace, and they're going to take everything of value. Okay, they're going to go on a shopping spree, and anything and everything that you hold dear, they're going to take it, and they're going to bring it back to me. And I'm putting it in my palace. This was actually Ben-Hadad's second demand. His first demand was for Ahab's wives and children. And Ahab had rolled over pretty quickly on that one. He said, okay, they're all yours. But when Ben-Hadad says, you know, and I'm coming for all your stuff too, okay, all the stuff in your palace. Well, Ahab is a man of principle after all. So he says, no way. 
You stay out of my palace. You can have my wives and children. You are not getting my gold. And so he says no. Well, how does Ben-Hadad respond? The way you would guess any maniacal despot would. He says that he is going to totally destroy King Ahab and, the, and Israel. And he gives orders for his, his army to prepare for battle. Okay, well, it's at this time as, as Ben-Hadad makes this decision that God takes an opportunity to, to try to get King Ahab's attention yet again. He sends another prophet to Ahab. And in verse 13, this is what, what Yahweh says. This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army, these Arameans? Yahweh says, I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. See, Israel is, is dreadfully outnumbered, and so Ahab would have to know that if Israel, if they, if they can pull out this battle, if they can win this, this war, that it is only by the hand of Yahweh that it was even possible so that he would know. That's what the Lord's up to. That's where he's headed. And so while the Aramean army, they're preparing for battle, well, Ben-Hadad and, and his 32 frat buddies, they're in their tents getting drunk at lunch. And while they're doing this, uh, Israel launches this surprise attack. They, they surprise the Arameans and, and devastate the Aramean army. Okay, they, they take him. Uh, Ben-Hadad is on the run for his life, barely escapes with his life. And, and then while Ben-Hadad, this king of the Arameans, while he's still sobering up and, and recovering from this humiliating loss, his joint chiefs of staff, they, they approach him and they say, look, we've got some advice for you, Ben-Hadad. Okay? So there, there are two problems with what you've just done and, and two problems that you need to fix before you can avenge this loss to the Israelites. Well, maybe there were three problems. It's not in the text, but I'll bet you their first recommendation was maybe not to throw a keg party right before a battle. Just a guess. But they said, look, you need two things. You need a new strategy. Said, get rid of all these, these, these 32 king buddies of yours. Replace them with Aramean officers. Okay, we need our men in charge. They said, and you need to raise a new army. The other one's done. So they said, you need a new strategy. And they said, you know what, you, what else you need? Said, you need a new, a new theology. Said, you need a new view of God. Let us help you with that. So in verse 23, this is what those, those four-star generals said. They said, their gods, the Israelites' gods, are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, down in the valleys, in some low, flat area, surely we will be stronger than they. And there it is. Israel's gods... They're gods of the hills. They're gods of, of the mountainous areas where Samaria is. So what do we need to do? We need to fight them down in some valley somewhere on a plain, some flat place where their God can't get to. That'll be our strategy. You need this strategy. You need a new theology. And, and now we've got a chance. And, you know, if you think about it, it's really not that bad of theological insight for a band of, I don't know, four-star generals, pagan generals at that Right? It's really not that bad of theology. I mean, again, they held this, this view that, that a normal pagan would in the ancient Near East, in the polytheistic ancient Near East. The view was that, that gods were restricted by geography okay, or, or some other boundary. And so you had a god of the valleys, you had a god of the sun, had a god of the rivers. So they said, well, I mean, look at the two capital cities for Israel. Right? You've got Jerusalem, you've got Samaria, and where are they located? They're up in the hills. They're in these mountainous areas. And why would they choose to put their capital cities there? 
because their gods are gods of the hills. That's where they can be protected. And so what do we need to do? We need to line up on some valley, some plain somewhere. That's how we win. Get them away from where their gods can protect them. That was, that was their view. That was their, their theology. And, and you hear that and, and you think, man, silly pagans. You know, gods of the hills but not the valleys. I can't believe those guys would even think that way. But I wonder how different our theology, how different our view of God really is. I wonder if, if we might also have this problem in our theology that, that we've just learned to, you know, work around. That we've learned to ignore it. We've just simply learned to live with. I wonder if maybe we're not all that different than these Arameans. Because think about it. Don't we compartmentalize God too? Don't we provincialize him and, and keep him up in the hills but out of the valleys? Don't we do this? Uh, for example, we don't have any trouble believing that, that God is the God of the hills, that he directs the rising and the falling of human civilizations, that the king's heart is like rivers of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns them wherever he pleases. God's a God of the hills. But he's not a God of the valleys, right? We can't even conceive of the possibility that God would be able to do anything about the bitterness that we've held towards an ex-spouse or a former business partner. He's not a God of the valleys. We have faith just like a pagan too, don't we? Or maybe it's flipped. Maybe it's flipped. Maybe it's the other way. Or he's a God of the hills, and so we, we trust that God prompted an old friend to call us on the very morning that we needed a kind word and somebody to pray over us. He's a God of the hills. Yeah, yeah, he, he caused that to happen. But he's not a God of the valleys. And so we don't even think to bring to God the angst that we feel about the political environment, the political climate in this country. We don't even think to cry out and ask God to help our nation and help our leaders because he's not a God of the plains. He can't get down there. So we'll just worry. We'll stress. We'll just grow, grow more and more angry. You see, we have Aramean blood running through our veins too. Or maybe we don't see the creative and, and undeniable ways that God provides for other families. But when it comes to our own, you know, we just got to save a little more, work a little harder, invest a little more carefully, hope the stock market behaves because it is all up to me to provide for mine. He's not a God of the valleys. I'll need to make things happen down there. You see, we're not all that different than some pagan military advisors, are we? We're not that different at all. See, we aren't more sophisticated in our faith than these Arameans. We're just more sophisticated in our, in our sin. We really are. We compartmentalize them just as they did. We provincialize them. We put them over here. We, we keep them in places where we're comfortable and out of all the places that we're not. We're not all that different. And that's one of the reasons why God permanently inked this story into the ever, everlasting word that he has given us. He wants us to remember the truth that is going to come to bear in this story, the truth that we're going to see and the way that this story ends. He wants us to know, just like Ben Adad, he, his desire is that we will know who he really is so that our, our faith wouldn't be fragmented, so it wouldn't be divided. So back to our story in, in verse, verse 26 of 1 Kings 20. 
Ben-Hadad, he marches his new army out a second time. But this time it's not to Samaria, it's not the hills, it's not the mountainous regions. No, it's now in a valley, the valley of Aphek, a valley, a plain where God surely can't get to. And he sets up and he is waiting for Israel there. But listen to how Yahweh repeats himself again when he comes to King Ahab. God's desire is that Ahab will know that he is a God of the hills and he is a God of the valleys. Listen in in verse 28. This is what Yahweh sends his prophet to say to Ahab. This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. And just as Yahweh had said, the battle begins and it ends within a day. The Aramean army is destroyed once again. Those who escape, they run to a city where a wall collapses on them and they're crushed. They're not even safe within the four walls of a fortified city. And now everyone will know that Yahweh, that that the Lord, he is God of the hills and he is God of the valleys. He's both. Well, everyone except Ahab. Ahab is eyewitness to all of this. He has a front row seat to God's work in his midst right before his eyes, and yet his faith is still flatlined. He still has a totally fragmented, divided faith. But how about us? Will we get it? The Lord's desire is that we will know that he's a God of the hills and that he's God of the valleys. His desire is that, that we will know that he has power and he has authority over every part of life. There's nothing that he is not sovereign over that he can't touch, whether it's the big or the small, whether it's the, the bad or the good, whether it's our greatest competencies or our deepest needs. He's saying, look, I'm God of it all. Come on, trust me. That's what he's trying to tell us through this passage. That's this, this deficit in our faith that he's trying to get us to see. Okay, but if, that, if that's true about God, if he truly is God of the hills and, and God of the valleys, then, then why, why do we keep God out? Why do we keep God out of the valleys and the plains? Why do we keep him out of, of this little corner of our life that, that we don't want him in or that we want to have control over? Why would we do that? He's telling us, come on, give that to me. So why would we do that with him? Why do we compartmentalize him? I think there's a few reasons that we do that. One, I, I think it's, it's simply trust. We don't trust him in that valley. We don't trust him on that plane. And so we're going to have to keep that to ourselves. So the godly mate that we long for, uh, I, can't, I can't trust you with that, Lord. I don't know where you'll take me with it. The child that we've been trying to conceive, I, I can't hand that to you, Lord. I can't talk to you about that because I don't know what you'll do with it. We don't trust him. We say, I'm... I'm going to have to stay in control over here, this, this little valley in my life. And so we hold on to it. As I reflected, you know, where does this show up for me? Uh, one of the ways that I've realized over the last couple of years that, that I have a God of the hills but not a God of the valleys where I keep God at a safe distance from me is when I have a, a close family member or a friend or even maybe a complete stranger who shares with me, who's a non-believer, and who shares with me some, some need or desire that they have. 
And they share that with me, and, and, uh, and I know that this could be a moment that God could show up in some momentous way, that, that he could show up big and, and that they could see for the first time who he really is. But when it comes time to pray in the presence of this non-believing friend or family member or, or person I've just met, you know, that's, that's when I can morph into an Aramean. And I find myself uh, avoiding those bold prayers that would ask God to, to show up, to hear the cries of this person's heart and to respond. And I can avoid those bold prayers because, because they frighten me. Why? Because what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't act? What if this little flicker of, of spiritual interest in, in this non, non-believing person's life that I know and, and care for, what if it, it, it's extinguished? Because God chooses not to move. And there I go. Faith just like a pagan. He's a God of the hills, but not a God of the valleys, right? God needs me to make sure that he stays safe from all accusation. The almighty creator of heaven and earth would like to thank Jeremiah Ebling for protecting his reputation in this moment. He's a God of the hills for me. He's not a God of the valleys. He's saying, come on, come on, give that to me. Let me in there. You know, pray, pray those courageous prayers you'd pray over on your own, you know, behind this person's back. Pray it right there with them. That's what God's asking me to do. It's what he's calling me to do. Sometimes we don't let him into this valley because we don't, we don't trust. We don't know what he's going to do with it. Another reason why we keep him out, why we keep him at arm, arm's length, why we compartmentalize God is because of competence. It's an area where, where we know what to do, where we think we know better perhaps, or at least we think we know enough that eh, we, don't, we don't really need help with this one. Now, that's what, that's what Jesus was getting at with Simon Peter. When, when Jesus comes to Peter, this is before he's called him to be one of the 12, Jesus comes to Peter, and, and he is, he's going to give Peter an opportunity to see that he is God of the hills and he is God of the valleys. And so Jesus, he jumps into Peter's boat, and he's about to give him a lesson about who, who is truly more competent in Peter's area of greatest competence, fishing. So Jesus he jumps into the boat, and he sees the empty nets on the floor of the boat and, and knows that they've been fishing all night. And so he says, hey, Peter, hey, why don't you just push out a little bit? Let's, let's go a little deeper and then drop those nets down. Let's see what happens. This is what Peter says. He says, Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. That's what he said. But what he meant was, you know, Jesus, I kind of know a thing or two about fishing. I've been doing it my whole life. You know, like I own a, a fishing company. My, my father, my grandfather, they were fishermen too. Okay, it, it, it kind of runs in the family. So I, I know you're... Uh, a good carpenter and a good public speaker and all, so I'm sure you know something about fishing that I don't. But fine, I'll toss these nets in and, and uh, you'll realize what I already know. No fish today. And aren't we all, Peter? Don't we do this with, with the Lord where there's this part of our life where, where we know what to do? We're competent. There's nobody that, that uh, we certainly don't need the help and and we don't even need the Lord's help. Has this happened to you maybe in parenting? You know, where your first two children, 
I mean, even in their first couple of months, they were sleeping 12 hours a night. You know, and as they grew, they were intelligent and inquisitive, and they got along together most of the time. They were obedient. They were tender towards the Lord. And so, yeah, we're, we're eager to give other parents advice, especially other parents who aren't, you know, as successful as us in parenting, you know, maybe don't know as much as we do about, about how to parent appropriately. In fact, we're thinking about writing a book on parenting because, I mean, we just want to help as many people as we can. I, I know the book, the book chapter titles already. Got them in my head. And we say, you know, Jesus, thanks for your offer, but I don't know if you've seen my two kids. Oh, we don't really need the help. Yeah. My spouse and me, we're, we're doing just fine. Thank you very much. But I'll bet, I'll bet you could find a set of parents out there who might need a little help right now. Why don't you, why don't you run along and, and maybe try to help them? And then, and then the third child comes along, <laughs> right? And everything that worked with the first two doesn't with this one. And you are lost. And you realize you gave yourself way too much credit on how those first two were doing, right? What's God saying? He's not saying, I told you so. He doesn't do that. What he's saying is, okay, now? Will you let me in there now? I mean, come on, you've needed my help all along in parenting. You just didn't realize it until now. But it's not too late. Come on, get me in there. I can help you. You need it. You need me. Or at work, you're killing it. You landed the, the company's largest client. You have the respect of, of your, your coworkers, and you, you say, thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. You know, I'm doing fine. Look, look at everything I've done here. Look at how well I've done. Yeah, I've got this. I really appreciate you offering to help, though. I'll bet someone else could use it. But look, aren't we all just one promotion, one new boss, one bad decision by someone else away from being in an absolute tailspin, aren't we? I mean, why wait until that happens to let him in? It is all so fragile. You know, every castle we build, it's made of sand, and it just happens to be low tide right now. That's all. Jesus is saying, come on, let me in there. Let's do this together. I can, I can help you. I know you think you know everything. I know more. Let me help you. We do this. We're, we, we are Peter. And then do you remember what happened with Peter, that professional fisherman? Remember how that story ends? He puts down his nets where Jesus told him to. He can't even get the fish back into his boat. There's so many. He's got to wave over a second boat to help him with all the fish that he's caught. And then, and then both boats almost sink. Jesus is saying, come on, let me in there, Peter. That's what he's saying to us. Let me in there. I can help you, whether it's going horribly or it's going swimmingly well. Let me in there. We don't let him in sometimes because of, of an area of competence. We keep him in the hills. We keep him out of the valleys. And one final reason that we don't let, let God in, that we keep him at arm's length, is because it's an area of sin. It's this, this area of our lives that, that's, yeah, it's dark and it's, it's secret, but we just don't want him meddling in it. We want to keep him out. We don't want to change it. We don't want to give it up. So, so we say thanks, but no thanks. And there are words that we have all said probably, words that have scrolled across our minds if they haven't left our lips. And when these words, when, when we say them or when we think them, we should be frightened. Okay, these are words that should jolt us awake. 
when we think them or when we say them. And, and, and what are those words? It's this. That's just the way I am. We know that we are speaking the native tongue of the Arameans when we say those words, when we think those words. We know that we have announced to everybody in the room that our God is a God of the hills, but not the valleys. And, and so, God, you're not welcome to address my ego, to address and, and deal with my inability to allow others to disagree with me. That's just the way I am. The, the fears, the insecurities that drive my neediness in my relationships, oh, I know they're there. I've tried to do something about them, and nothing will change that. It's just who I am. I'm a jealous person. Nothing's helped that. That's just the way I am. There's a bunch of Arameans that would love to say to you today, you don't ever have to say those words again. Those, those words never have to leave your lips again because Jesus is asking to get in there. Come on. He's asking, he's telling you he can heal, he can restore. Yeah, it will be painful and it will take time, but, but he's saying, look, stop keeping me at a distance. Let me into that valley. I can help you there. Stop keeping me out. Stop pushing me away. He's trying to convince us that he is God of the hills and he's God of the valleys. He's both. One last question. What should scare us about being an Aramean? What, what should frighten us about keeping God up in the hills and keeping him out of the valleys of our lives, whether it's because of trust or competence or sin or, or something else? What should frighten us about that? I think it's this, that if, if we have this part of our lives that we won't let God into, Okay, if we say, God, you, you stay away. You can stay up in those hills. Yep, you're safe up there. But I want you, I want you away from here. I think, I think it's this, is that when we say that to him, he'll do it. He's not going to force his way in. Okay, he won't push past you. He doesn't do that. Not because he can't. It's because he won't. God has committed himself to your freedom, and he's chosen it. He's not going to violate that. And so when we keep him out, when we say, yep, off limits, you may not go to this part of my life, then God says, okay, if you insist, he'll agree to that demand. In a couple of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, he goes back to his hometown of of Nazareth. And instead of of throwing a celebration at this homecoming, that Jesus has has come back home, he's in the middle of his ministry, instead of, of, of throwing a party, the people, they see him and they sneer at him. And they say, wait, isn't this that carpenter? And they keep him out. They shut him down. And this is what Matthew writes. It says, Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Mark goes even further. Mark says, Jesus could not do any miracles there. Look, think about how often have we missed out on the work of God in our midst because we have faith like a pagan. How, how many encounters with the almighty God have we kept those in our, our little circle from, from experiencing because our God is a God of the hills but not the valleys? How much have we missed out on because we don't let God into these places where he deserves to be, where he yearns to be, where he asks us to be? He'll say okay if you won't let him in. 
Look, when we keep God in the hills and don't allow him in the valleys, we absolutely lose out on the help that he could provide us there. He's, he's trying to get in there because he, he truly can help. But we lose out on something more, something even more important. When we keep God in the hills and out of the valleys, what we miss out on is intimacy with our Savior. We miss out on, on the experience and, and the comfort of his presence that he wants to give us. You see, our Heavenly Father desires so deeply to help us. He really does. But you know what he wants even more? He wants to be with us. He wants to commune with us. He wants loving connection. He wants relationship and friendship. He wants trust between you and him to flourish. In the last book of the Bible, Jesus is is speaking to the church at Laodicea. It's this church full of, of Arameans, full of men and women who keep God in the hills and out of the valleys. And, and Jesus comes to this church, and, and he's asking for them to let him in. He's, he says, come on, I want, I want to be with you again. I want to be close again. Let's, be, let's, let's have the intimacy that we once had in our relationship. And in Revelation 3, this is what Jesus says. He urges them, and he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Do you hear it? He wants them back. He wants to be close once again. He wants the intimacy that they once had. He wants to commune again with them. And what happens if we don't answer the door? What will he do? He's respectful. He's courteous, so he'll just keep knocking. He will simply wait for as long as it takes. Listen, do you hear a knock this morning? We could leave our Aramean heritage behind today. What do you say? He's God of the hills. He is the God of the valleys. Would you go with me to that God, God of the hills and valleys, together in prayer right now? Holy Spirit, I ask you to be at work in each one of our hearts, Lord, and I ask that you would convict us or encourage us, whatever we need. Maybe we need both to see, Lord, the the places in our life, the people in our life that we have, have kept you from, we have kept you out of. And, Father, I ask that for each one of us that you would, you would allow us to see into our souls, and, and uh, maybe we know exactly what that is. Maybe, maybe we're searching to see what that would be. And, Father, would you give us the courage, the boldness to say, today everything changes. I'm not keeping anything hidden from you anymore, Lord. I'm not keeping anything uh, at an arm's length from you. You can have it. I'm trusting this with you today. I need your help. I want to be connected to you again in the loving uh, communion that you desire to have with me too. I pray you'd help us to do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.